What's up, discography discussion? This is John Drake, co-host of Talking Into Infinity, a dream theater podcast. Hey, this is Brian Hendrickson. I am the creator of Talking Into Infinity, oh. a dream theater podcast. And that was my lovely and talented sidekick, John Drake. Ouch. Damn, dude. <laughs> and you are listening to discography discussion episode X. Dude, we did episode 10 like five years ago. What are you talking about? It's a plan. Words joke. Get with the program. <laughs> You're listening to Discography Discussion, episode 268, Symphony X, hosted by Joseph Wren. Using Ludwig van like that, he did no harm to anyone, he just wrote music. With John and Brian of Talking Into Infinity. It's just nonstop fantasy sci-fi shit, which I love, but it's like there's no way in fuck you can remember that stuff. If this guy doesn't fucking stop using the goddamn harpsichord, enough is enough. You're not fucking Mozart in the fucking Amadeus movie. Way to steal my fucking line, Christ. John. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you. Presented by DiscussMetal.com. And if you thought Dream Theater was the only progressive metal band in the 90s, then you are ready for this episode of Discography Discussion. I am Joe. That is John. That is Brian. And we're going to talk about some Symphony X. Guys, thanks for being here. I forgot we're not doing video, so waving is kind of pointless. <laughs> <laughs> I think Brian's more excited than I am. He's an actual Symphony X fan. Symphony? He's an actual Symphony X fan. <laughs> and I am familiar with the band, but I never, I, I'd only ever listened to one record. So this is new for me. I smashed the entire catalog into a two-week period, and I've got a list of notes, and I'm excited to talk about it because, again, Brian is a big fan. Yeah, I just stand on the side of the stage and cool off the band. I'm a massive fan. No, actually, I so, so I first... <laughs> you spin me got, right round, Brian. I know. <laughs> so I got into Symphony X probably the same time you first heard them, John. Was that the Gigantor? It was. Yeah. So I remember... And I don't know if you were like me. I didn't get the tickets to that until like maybe the month before or something because it was kind of a sort of last minute announcement from what I remember on it. And then I looked to see like, oh, where are all the bands going to be on this? Because, you know, I kind of wanted to check most of them out. And uh, honestly, I did not have any of their catalog. And I was looking to see, man, what's the last thing they did? And it was like three years, I think, um, from the, the previous album. So I full disclosure, I downloaded illegally off a of BitTorrent about four or five songs just because I couldn't really find any of the albums locally. And uh, they played a whopping six songs, but all of them were totally killer. And probably from that moment on, I was completely hooked. Yeah, I I remember, like, I don't mean this in a bad way, but they were kind of like that band I sat through waiting to get to the, you know, to Dream Theater and Megadeth on that tour. And I was like, yeah, like, this is actually cool. Like, I'm enjoying this. It's not just, all right, this is good. I'm going to go get a beer. I was like, yeah, this is interesting. You know, it, it, I, I didn't run out and grab their stuff, but... You know, I think it was that same year I knew you and I, you know, we met because we worked at the same company and you said, dude, you've got to listen to this this record Paradise Lost, the Symphony X. And and we talked about the fact that they were on Gigantour. And I distinctly remember going, this record kicks ass. This is actually really good. So I had that experience with them, but I never dug into the catalog beyond that. So this was this was very new to me. 
And it was it was pretty interesting, man. It was it was really cool to kind of go back and you know listen to things from from the you know from the get go, and um, you know kind of listen to something that is along the same vein, uh, you know, a little more straightforward than you know Dream Theater, who we talk about on a biweekly basis. So it was cool. It was a good listen. I'm guilty of seeing this band live for the first time, but I always knew the name Symphony X. I don't know how much time you guys spent at the bowling alley in the mid-90s, but there was always that sticker machine in the corner where you put in the four quarters in the slots and you get out a random <laughs> metal band from probably Roadrunner. So like everybody, I'm walking around with my typo negative sticker on my notebook and my tool sticker and my other tool sticker and then Symphony X. So I knew the name of the band. I was aware that they existed, but I never sat and listened to them because I want to tell you kids... It used to be a lot harder to find non-mainstream bands. You had to order that shit in the mail and had to wait days for that CD to show up. And you had better pray that you ordered the good one. <laughs> and then the Gigantor popped up and there's Symphony X. This is the band. Correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but like, and Brian, especially like, the, they didn't really get major label support until the most recent three records. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, so I, I know that, uh, so 2007 was when Paradise Lost came out, and was, I'm pretty sure that was about the first one you could actually just walk into Best Buy, back when Best Buy had CDs, because I know for a fact, I, <laughs> I, bought, I bought their last three CDs from there, um, that Iconoclast, um, as well as Underworld, I actually bought all those at Best Buy, and that's 2016 was the, I believe, the last one, Underworld, so it's been a long time since you could get them, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like, like you were saying, like, you could not really find that stuff, you know, unless you were, I guess we're lucky enough to have like, you know, maybe a mom and pop record store, but you probably would have to order it, the old stuff for sure. Well, before Brian gives us a symposium on all things Symphony X, I'm going to take this time to say thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. If you are not a subscriber, then you can find everything discography discussion at discussmetal.com. We are on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, so if you have an Amazon Echo or a Google Home, you have no excuse. Ask it to play the latest episode of the Discography Discussion Podcast, and it will. Or ask it to play the latest episode of Talking Into Infinity. Did you guys know that works? It worked for me this week. I did not know that that worked. Surprise, surprise. What's going on on Talking Into Infinity? Are you guys talking to John Petrucci every single week? Brian, I believe it's bi-weekly now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been that way ever since we started. But uh, yeah, we recently had Paul Logan, who's a co-writer for the new James Debris uh, album. And uh, he was an awesome interview. Um, it's really a, kind of the first time we've had someone who's actually a creator with the band musically. Now, we've, we've had people on like Wayne Joyner, who, who does all the video uh, we had a local guy on here who used to actually was a, a tour, a touring sound guy with them. His name was Bill. Um, but this is the first time we've gotten super close to somebody who's involved in actually the writing and the creation of someone, you know, doing something involved with a member of Dream Theater. So we're looking super forward to that. Um, hopefully coming up in a couple months. And uh, rumor has it possibly will be on uh, with Paul as well. And we are going to probably almost do like a track by track going through the album. Wait, wait a say going to be on the show we're not supposed to do that <laughs> you know, we, we just interviewed paul logue he you know is from eden's curse a phenomenal metal band which actually you know kind of in the same vein of symphony x uh you know great songwriter he's you know james's co-writer uh, james labrie's co-writer on his upcoming solo record a beautiful shade of gray which will be out on may 20th 
Uh, as you mentioned, Brian, Bill Fertig, front of house sound guy for Dream Theater on the leg of their uh, Images and Words 25th anniversary tour. We've talked to Wayne Joyner, who did all their amazing stage graphics for the Distance Over Time and View From the Top of the World tours, all those awesome music videos you see for those songs. Uh, he did all of that as well. And, you know, we, we actually get, you know, fans of the show on. You know, we, we bring people's comments up. We, we involve people in the discussion and we invite everyone to kind of like, you know, nerd out on Dream Theater the same way we do. It's a very interactive show. So a uh, lot of cool stuff coming up. We've got, what are we, Brian, I think what, what is like over two years worth of show topics in the pipe, I think, you know. So yeah, the show's going great. It's a total blast. So, you know, check it out. It's Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. It's on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter and all that stuff. So just Google us and you'll find us. Uh, as for other podcasts, Joe, uh, you can also ch- <laughs> you can also check out the nerdiest podcast in the galaxy, the Nerf Herder Council. That is the nerd podcast that I host uh, for the first. I would say, God, we've been around like six and a half years now. For the first about six years, it was strictly Star Wars, but we did a format change at the end of 2021, and now it's pretty much anything nerdy we can think of. So, just Google Nerf Herder Council. And again, we're everywhere you can find your podcasts, either you know on YouTube or audio and all those sorts of things. Uh, we we have WTF Friday special episodes. My co-hosts, AJ and Steve, just talk about anything. They'll literally build Legos live and just go on a rant. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff if you're into nerdy things. So go check that one out. And uh, again, check out Talking Into Infinity, a Dream Theater podcast. Sometimes we get comments on the episodes we release here at DiscussMetal.com. And I want to remind everybody to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Send us an email. Keep those suggestions coming. Join our Discord server. There are links to all of that in the show notes. John Drake, you oh recently made an appearance on our Guns N' Roses episode. And we got an email from Punk Giraffa. I'm hoping I say that last name right. He says, I'm definitely putting this one in my top five shows all the shows are really interesting and full of information, great opinions, but the best ones are when you guys are not on the same page. The fact that your opinions on Guns N' Roses were so emphatically different made the show so entertaining, and I'm on the same page with you guys. How did they do so well right at the start, then suck the rest of their career? Wow. I thought this was going to be meeting me getting blasted because I listened back to that, and I was a dick on that show. <laughs> I felt bad. Like I, I couldn't finish it. I was like, "What am I doing? Like, why am I acting this way?" Like I had, I had had a few cocktails. Not gonna, not gonna lie. I'd been out with my wife all day, but it wasn't like I was like. Did you have one earbud in the whole day? <laughs> <laughs> Might as well have, dude. It's not like I was like drunk and belligerent, and not knowing what I was doing. I think I was just riled up and excited, and but it really, I, I felt came across poorly. But hey, man, to. Puncturafa, thank you for the compliment, man. I, I appreciate that. I know it's not solely because of me, but that's awesome, man. Ho- hopefully you enjoy the Symphony X one as well, because I will have a couple controversial takes on here. Is that a friend of uh, me say F you? The guy that wrote that email? <laughs> it's one of our regular uh, guys. So Brian, tell me and John and all the listeners about Symphony X. So my take on Symphony X is they are a neoclassical, kind of a power symphonic metal at times band uh, based out of the East Coast. To me, they are what Ingve Malmsteen should be if he ever actually progressed his music and his writing and, you know, and the way he conduct, conduct, conducts business and whatnot. 
and their their sound has grown like immensely over the first album to the last. It's just nine day. Every single album gets a little bit better, a little bit tighter, a little bit heavier, a little bit more progressive. And at the same time, adding melodies to it. Um, and doing this deep dive, I will admit, I kind of forgot they had an original singer. And if my first impression of Symphony X was the very first album that I'd heard, I probably would not have given this band um, much of a second thought because I just am not a huge fan of, of the vocals on the first album. And it's just immediately on Damnation Game when the second album starts out. It's just night and day. The vocals just destroy. It's like a whole new instrument. And it's a, I think, a band that has a really unique niche. I don't think there's any bands out there that really that sound like them that are doing what, like what they do. They've just managed to develop their sound. You know, it's taken like a lot of bands. It's taken a while to get to where it is, but I feel like it's kind of a well-oiled machine right now. And I always know what I'm going to get from them. They definitely have a shtick that it's not totally unique to this band. But when you look back on the other shredheads, and I know you mentioned Ingve and the way he does business. There's always a formula to the neoclassical madness or the guitar shred madness. And I like how Symphony X is a combination of what Dream Theater was doing in the late 80s, early 90s, what Ingve still does. And they never stopped doing that syncopated heavy metal thing. I make fun of deathcore bands all the time where the complexity of the breakdown is limited to how syncopated the guitar and the drummer is with the kick drum and the low B string. Symphony X, most of the time, they're in sync. And I don't think syncopation and technicality are the same thing, but when you can shred the keyboard like it's a guitar, you're a step above most players. And I agree with you. The first album, which we're going to get into in a second, it's not the same experience, but it changes so fast, I don't know that it hurts the band. John, what about you? Where do you start with Symphony X? So, as I said in the intro, I was familiar with Paradise Lost, and I remember really enjoying it. So when you asked me to do this, I was like, okay, I'll go check this stuff out. And Brian knows way more about the band than I do. He's talked about them several times on our show. Uh, you know, personally, we've had discussions about them. And when I went back... You know, I, it, he and I actually disagreed right off the bat because I don't think that the original singer is that different from Russell Allen. And I will only say that Russell Allen is absolutely phenomenal. Fuck but yes. The, but the but the previous singer sounds like if Russell Allen's balls hadn't dropped. It's not, you know, it's it's not the difference between and and I love, you know, I'll relate this to Dream Theater because it's what's you know nearest and dearest to my heart. But you know, <laughs> it's 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 not like the difference between Charlie Dominici. And James Labrie. So when you listen to When Dream and Day Unite, you get Charlie. You're like, okay. And then James Labrie comes in and you get another day with that monstrous note. And then learn, you're like, what the hell? I didn't get that monstrous divide between singers like Brian does. Um, and, you know, I the other disagreement, you know, Brian and I talked, you know, for the last two weeks about the keyboard stuff. And I think that is something that. I think the band's very consistent throughout their catalog. You know, Brian mentioned they, they developed their sound, developed their sound. I think the sound to me was always there. It just got stronger and stronger. They kind of knew what they wanted to be on the, on the debut record, and they just, like, really honed it. But the keyboards, to me, kind of took away from it. And this is something that I have notes on for pretty much every record. And, I, you know, I actually use the word dick punch in my notes at one point because the keyboard sound really annoys me in certain areas. I'm going to allow it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's... 
I mean, my my interpretation of the band is, I, I think they're excellent at what they do, and and I don't mean this in a negative way. One of my main points was they're almost like the ACDC of a symphonic progressive metal band. Like when you buy the record, you know exactly what you're going to get. And you know that if you're a fan, you're going to love it. It's going to be good. And if you're not a fan, there's not going to be a lot there to draw you in and say, well, this is different than what we did. So if you didn't like that, we'll check this out. Like, no, they're like, nah, you know, we're fucking Symphony X. This is what we do. Strap in for a good hour because here we go. And, and I, I, I always think there's something to be said for that because, you know, when you think about bands like Queensryche, they've got these classic records and then they make this horrific left turn into something like here in the now frontier. And you're like, what the hell is that? It, you, 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 as, as a fan of a band, like you don't mind them taking chances here and there, but when you do something that crazy, it's just something you don't want to hear. And symphony X never does that. They're like, Hey, you like symphony X here's symphony X. The production just gets better. The songwriting just gets better and the production gets way heavier. So that's my interpretation of the band. Well, I'm glad you're getting your horrible takeout before we do our show tomorrow. So <laughs> he's got all night to give all the hot takes. I agree with most of your last point. I think you're absolutely completely out of your mind if you don't see the difference between the two voices. Um, I mean, it's just, it's not even close. There's so many parts where the guys, he's just flat out not even singing in key. And it, it just, it ruins, it ruins like all the great stuff that goes into the musicianship on some of these songs to the point of like, it just almost like, I want to throw my headphones at it. I, I think it's absolutely horrible. I think what you're listening to, Brian, is not the singer in that instance. I think it's the keyboard sound that you're listening to. I think that's what's driving you nuts. <laughs> no, it's not. The and I think, I think, I think you're in denial because you're a keyboard player. So you just don't want to admit that this keyboard sound is like the worst in recorded history for this type of music. It, it's like he he started recording keyboards in 1994 with this like cardboard Casio piece of shit, and then as the years progressed, <laughs> like the rest of the band starts getting bigger amps and bigger production value and all this kind of stuff. And the only thing that changed for him was that the cardboard got a little bit thicker on his crap ass keyboard. His keyboard sounds sucks dick. It is terrible and it remains terrible. It sounds awesome as an atmospheric instrument throughout the records. When he goes into solo parts, it is awful. I mean, it really takes away from it. Like, I mean, like, I mean, Brian, how many times did I email you just this week alone going, what is with this keyboard sound? It is shit. And I don't understand that. I really don't. So I think what you're listening to on the first record is the keyboards and not the vocals, because I, I'm telling you, dude, like I do not hear what you hear in terms of that singer. It just sounds like a less powerful, less muscular Russell Allen a little whinier. It's not nearly the, the the disparity, at least to me, that I that you're hearing. I, at least to me. Well, you're two for two on bad takes, so let's see if we can go three when we start. <laughs> nice. We got into the first album a long time ago, 1994's Symphony X. Are we recording in the dungeon yet? Oh, I asked that question because this sounds like your independently recorded metal band did the bare minimum from a production side it could be independent or they have a producer who does not know how to mix the album very well i don't think the vocals are bad they sound underproduced it sounds like they had a guy who could do the live show and at a time when progressive metal was play the guitar play the keyboards have a sweet drum solo in the middle of the concert and then reverb for days 
this is a dry first album. And independent releases or independently recorded records in the early 90s were not of the same quality that they are today. Today, you can install free programs and everybody has a tutorial of how to sound so mainstream. I expected it to sound like Dream Theater right off the bat, and it doesn't. It doesn't take very long to get there, but it does sound like the first album. It's not as clean. I don't hate it, but I think the basics of what Symphony X is, you can hear it on this album. Yeah, when it's, when it, right when, when it starts out, it's like um, you almost feel like it's part two of I'll See the Light Tonight or Disciples of Hell. It's got all that atmospheric, you know, kind of spooky sort of stuff going on right away. Um, I think this was mostly almost like a Michael Romeo solo album that, you know, they sort of just maybe at the last second sort of decided to turn into an album. And I think this was probably mostly done in his home studio or whatever. I'm sure there wasn't a lot of money in production stuff behind it. And um, if you figure it came out in 94, it probably, I mean, they probably recorded this, you know, up to maybe two, three years earlier than that even. So that's probably, you know, we we just have to really put that into context when we're going back and listening to it now, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Brian. Um, I, I was, you know, Joe, to your point, I was kind of surprised about the production value because, you know, I'm thinking 1994. Uh, I recorded an album in 1995 myself. It was the first thing I recorded. I was 19. And obviously the songs aren't the same, but the sound of the instrumentation and everything was way more in your face and alive and vibrant and that was just it at a local studio in someone's garage and it's like what the hell happened here so i think brian i would tend to lean towards you know what you just said and you know i i didn't research it quite back this far so maybe you're 100 percent correct in saying that they recorded it like 90 91 92 and it was that because at that time this is the kind of production value you would hear whereas 1994 things are starting to turn towards the better you're getting, you know, the, the the beginnings of Pro Tools and all that stuff, um, you know, and you know, in my notes, I I, I mentioned the same thing: thin production. You know, the songs are cool, um, you know, and, and Joe, to your point, the mix, you know, the bass player and the second guitar parts are criminally low in the mix on this one, and it suffers from mastering, not from actual performance. Which, if this is 100% independent, which it sounds like it is to me, power to you guys. You did yeah. better. You did better than me and my friends with our four-track cassette player. Yeah, yeah. And you know, again, you know, coming back to being serious, I mean, the keyboard sound just—it doesn't. I get that it's like a neoclassical thing, and I get that it's, you know, this is the kind of style, like the harpsichord type of sound, like that's what this type of metal calls for. But even with that being said, it just does—it doesn't sound right. It doesn't blend with the rest of the instruments worth a damn. And and, and I, I understood that on this record because, you know, again, it's their first one. It sounds independently produced, you know, and which I think it was, you know, but it doesn't get any better as, as time goes on. So that's what kind of confused me. Like I, I gave him a pass for that on this one, but. Well, I'm only going to say this once about the keyboards. Well, you're wrong. Actually, I'll probably say it. One <laughs> you know, the, the keyboard sign on this. Okay, so this is like, Almost, Shit. This is like Rock Keyboard 101 for the way this music is. This is the same type of sound Tony McAlpine uses on the Edge of Insanity and off of Maximum Security, which is like 86 and 87. I know that's earlier than 94, but it's still, it's all fueled in that same vein. It's also the, the Jens, Jens Johansson keyboard sound that he uses on all the Yngwie stuff he played on. You know, it's kind of almost like that distorted 
harpsichord synth lead type thing. I'm sure that's probably the one that annoys you the most. It yes. sounds kind of farty and squawky and and whatnot. And that's just the way it's it sounds. I think it gets better um, as the albums go on. It, it doesn't sound as powerful on this one, but it doesn't bother me. I mean, this is it's just what I expect from this style. It sounds like the mission statement was heavy metal queen. Yeah, I could see that mixed with some classical music. Because there's definitely those elements there. So mix in some sabotage, and you're good to go. Yeah, I have that in my notes, actually. On the second song, right off the bat, they're trying to be queen, I think. And it's very dangerous territory to go there because it can come off as like bad rock opera, bad rock on Broadway type of thing if it's not done right. And I just don't think the singer has the ability to, to sell that as a theatrical or a cinematic type of a vocal thing, which is what freddie mercury can do with the song but this guy cannot pull that off and i think they're a little over ambitious because on the rest of the albums they don't really have a lot of these kind of vocal harmonies coming in and out out of nowhere there's there's stuff here and there but i I think they really kind of overdid it on some of these it's almost like they tried to cram as much as they possibly could in this one album and and i think you know when you do that to a point it can be a fault i i would agree and you know i mean brian to your point about the vocalist like my note on this record like my very first impression after a few songs, I'm like, he sounds kind of like a less ballsy Ronnie James Dio to me. He's got that tone and he just doesn't have like the nuts to it. But, you know, he's 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 powerful for what he does. It's just thin and he's definitely got the range. So, you know, I just, man, I, I don't hear what you're hearing in terms of, you know, and I get it. Russell Allen is absolutely a world-class vocalist and we'll, we'll get to that here in, in a minute, but... I just don't hear the stark difference that you hear. I mean, do you hear that, Joe? Because I, I don't. It sounds dry. It sounds like somebody had a concept and wanted to record it and didn't want anybody's help. Even in 1994, I don't hear a producer who's coming out of the 80s leaving these vocals so dry. It almost sounds like a flex. Because you've played in those bands, John, who want to show up and only you both have. It's not just a John thing. It can be a Brian thing, too, (laughs) where the singer wants to do it all in one take or the guitarist wants to do it all in one take or I have to use my amplifier. The concept of making an album is foreign when especially when you're young, it becomes more of a this is what I have and I want to showcase me instead of creating the best thing I can. So the decisions to mix it this way sound more like a flex to me than an actual we could only do this i don't hear that because with five or six people on stage you could record this as is and call it the soundtrack to your broadway spectacular and everybody would buy it i've heard a dozen broadway cast recordings that sound just like this well, go to the song Shades of Grey. Okay, it's like number six. The chorus on that, it's like, I don't know why my heart keeps calling. I really don't want you to stay. He's singing flat as a pancake on that. There's no way you can tell me that that vocal on that song is in the same stratosphere of what Russell Allen would do with something like that. It's just... It's Have just you listened to the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, But... Is that did he sing on that or being flat is sometimes a creative decision? I think. Okay. Was that your creative decision to sing flat when you're imitating it a minute ago, Brian? Because it's like 
That's not. Yeah, I was dead on. That's my whole point. (laughs) (laughs) No, it it doesn't sound good. There's nothing metal. There's nothing cool about it. It's flat. It just, I don't know. It's just, I don't, especially when you hear that song right there, to me, that's just like night and day. Like that's, that's the Charlie versus Labrie thing right there. It's not even the same stratosphere. Well, do you think, and to your earlier point, do you think, you know, question for both you guys, do you think that maybe that that is more proof that maybe this was recorded in like 91 or something back when that vocal style, you know, the more clean, soaring, operatic, you know, Jeff Tate from Mind, Crime and Empire was the way to go for bands like this. And then they just kind of had this in the can for a bit. Because, I mean, I I think that that sounds like, it, you know, it plays right into your point from earlier, Brian. Yeah, well, we've had this conversation before that Mike Portnoy said and Petrucci said that's what they thought they wanted originally, and then they changed their whole tune on that. So it could have been the same thing with Symphony X. Maybe that's what they kind of thought they wanted originally. I just don't think it's done well on here. Okay. Well, let's get to the next one where we can all agree shit gets real. 1995's The Damnation Game. If you didn't believe Symphony X was here with their self-titled album, they are definitely here. Russell Allen is here. Two of the three Michaels are here, I think, if I remember the (laughs) timeline of this band. This is the album I started with. I hear the neoclassical and I love it. I forget sometimes that neoclassical isn't just a solo guitarist thing because Yngwie kind of beat that into my head. I have mixed feelings about this type of metal looking back because when I hear this, I hear all the progressive pieces of Dream Theater, and I struggle to hear the uniqueness of this band because this is the band for the most part for the next 15 to 20 years. And I think super fans of any style would be fine with that. But in mid-1990s, is that enough? Well, it's better than some of the other 80s leftovers we had. Yeah, I... I have notes about some Dream Theater influence on a couple of records coming up. I, I think I think you can definitely hear that. I just don't think it's as pronounced as it will be in the future on a couple of things. Like I like I actually listed a song here and there. Like what, what is? Yeah, I've like, got I got the same song you do. I'm sure when we get to it, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be awesome if you did. Because well, it, I, it, I think kind of you know the point about I think it sounds dated in the sense of right off the bat you've got. I think you talked about how there's specific, you know, styles and traits and tricks that these bands do. And one of them is this it's this kind of dual guitar keyboard harmony where it's basically all these baroque Bach riffs, which Ingve wrote the book on that. And right off the bat in Damnation Game, you're getting that, you know, right in the middle of the, the song it's, it comes off and they're just they're just flying away on those. But I can never get enough of those to me. I love that. But that's a very distinct thing that as if we were going to go song by song by song by song Every fourth song, I'd be like, okay, they're doing that Bach, you know, double guitar, keyboard, you know, Baroque thing again. Um, you know, but the fact is, Alan's voice is already just tearing through there, and the guitar already sounds heavier. And like you said, it's already like, okay, this is just a totally different thing. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of up there between Images and the, and the first, you know, the first Dream Theater album. I won't say it's that night and day, because, that I mean, that's one of the greatest albums of all time. As much as I love Symphony X... You know, I'm not going to put the damnation game in the same <laughs> words. I'm sorry, I'm just not going to do that, even if I was a super, you know, fan of Symphony X. But uh, yeah, they're already sounding better and stronger and heavier, and it, it's just, you know, you're you're starting to see what it's going to become. 
Well, I think, you know, this record is pretty similar to the first. And I think this starts to establish the pattern. You know, you hear some bigger choruses and the songwriting gets a little tighter. And I think that's one thing you can say about the band is that they just continue on that trajectory album for album for album. There's not there's not a drop off for them. It's not, okay, everything's good. Like, oh, here's their shit record. Okay, now they're back up. You know, they, they don't really, they don't have that, at least to, to me. And I'm very new to it. So I was waiting for that, you know, the inevitable crash eventually to where fans would listen to it and go, okay, well, that's that's the record, everyone. Just don't don't listen to that, you know. But I, I don't hear that. And I, I think this record is the start of that, you know, because if you liked Symphony X, the album, you get to this one, you're like, oh, this is a little better and it sounds a little better. So, you know, and, you know, I did list a couple songs because a few things stood out. You know, The Edge of Forever was a really cool tune. There's some great melodic guitar stuff in there. And, you know, it has it has some cool lyrics to it. I mean, the one thing about this band is that everything's based around fantasy. If, if there's a song that's not based around fantastic lyrics, uh, fantastical, I should say, I'm not aware of it. I wasn't listening that closely, but I heard everything about dragons and fire and mountains. I was going to ask, are all these albums an individual story or is every song its own fantasy mini story i wondered the same thing I, I i actually did like are these all like mini concept albums or or full concept albums they just never really said it like well paradise lost is because it's built it's based off of the milton milton uh, yeah poem. and i think probably a lot of underworld might be iconoclast this kind of has that whole theme of like the machines are taking over the future and you know, one of those deals. I don't know if you call that a concept album. I think it's probably pretty close to it. Somebody was watching The Matrix. <laughs> but Or yeah, Terminator. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think this record, you know, the, the other song that I pulled out was, you know, Winter's Dream parts one and two were really cool. Um, I don't understand why there were two parts. And if I remember right, part two came first. I mean, I guess that's just a weird proggy thing to do. So, okay. Um, but I thought those were cool. And, you know, again, like I was waiting for this jump, you know, because when you listen to something like Kill 'Em All to Ride the Lightning, th th there's a pretty stark difference between those records, you know, not only in, in production. I mean, they both sound pretty good, but they definitely sound very different. And the songwriting is, is much more progressed on Ride the Lightning, whereas with this one, you know, between Symphony X and Damnation Game, it's just, I like that record. Now let's put some steroids in there and like beef them up for a few weeks. Oh, that's the Damnation Game. That's kind of the impression that I got. And it's really the impression that I got with each subsequent record as well. Yeah. Another thing I noticed on this one, you get about three songs um, where the piano is really driving it. And while I'm, I'm not sure if it's a real piano, a lot of times it might be a, a kind of a bad synth piano from back then. Some of them are not great. Like some of these I would love yeah. to hear be recorded with just a killer <laughs> giant 30000 or $100,000, you know, Bosendorfer piano in a studio or even just a you know, a digital piano nowadays compared to what they had back in 95 or whatever, it's just night. Well, th this this guy had a $12.37 budget for his <laughs> keys, but continue. Well, the piano parts don't sound that bad. I know the other parts that you're no, talking about. No, they don't. About. But, uh, but yeah, like the string piano thing on the haunting is really cool. And you pointed out like the last song, this is your, this is going to be your typical thing. We argue about whether a song is one song or two songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we argue this kind of thing all day long. <laughs> Where this one's clearly two songs, part one and part two. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I'll give you that on the keys, by the way. Like, the piano stuff is cool. Like I said, like, and this is this is a theme throughout, you know, the entire discography, is that, you know, when the guy's soloing, it's just not good. 
But when it's used as an atmospheric instrument or like, you know, the piano, you're, you're not going to ever do like a, let's do like a neoclassical shred guitar solo with a grand piano behind it. Like, you know, doubling it. You don't, that, that almost never happens, you know, but, you know, so the piano sounds great. And when the keyboards are atmospheric, it sounds great. It's just the solo sound is so thin and weak. It's just, it's not what the rest of the instruments are. So, so did anyone else pick up on uh, Winter's Dream, the, the first part of that, where he whispers and he goes, what does it mean? It's like a, it's like ripped, like right out of silent lucidity, the way it's perfectly pl- placed the phrase right in there. If you, go, if you get a chance, go back and listen to it. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> I like, love that you, I love that you noticed this stuff, man. He puts it in there and you're just like, you know, I don't know. It just sounded exactly like that part from, you know, silent lucidity where the guy starts, you know, it's, there's those little talking parts here and there. I like looking back and listening when progressive metal was everything that modern heavy metal had built up to that point with the goal being to keep the audience engaged for the next 45 to 60 minutes because there's nothing musically unique about this album from the previous or for the next three albums I think but the band is able to execute in a way that I wish Dream Theater did more at that time I feel like Dream Theater jumped into the more melodic part of the metal and Symphony X is just trying to play as much double bass as they possibly can and keep the guitars engaged. I can see where you're coming from on that. I, you know, I, I really didn't want to do this and, and kind of bring it back to dream theater since that's what Brian and I do. But you know, I am a little biased on the dream theater side and admittedly, I think even people that aren't fans of dream theater, but are, are at least familiar with them have to admit that Dream Theater has those ups and downs. You may say it's in quality. I would disagree. But in terms of, you know, there's a heavy song. There's a mellow song. There's a weird song. There's like a straightforward song. You know, there's all these different flavors to it. Symphony X is just like, hey, man, we play speed, you know, progressive neoclassical metal. Like, that's what we do. There, there's really, I mean. And at this point, we're putting out an album every year. So this is going to be our live show for the next nine months. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but there's 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 some ballads and there's quiet parts in there, and I think as they go on, there's more and more of those, and it's a little more dynamic. But I, I just think it's as much as I love Dream Theater, and it's going to sound pompous to say that it's just too hard to compare them and say, oh, you know, they're similar, but they're not the same, and they've really never been the same. No, no, they appeal to a different crowd. I think Symphony X, especially at this point, is appealing to the guitar shred crowd more yeah. than they are the progressive crowd. Well, the very I, first episode we did, remember, John, we had a question that was like, if you could have somebody replace John Petrucci or something. <laughs> that's right. And the very first guy, I mean, the only guy I could think of was Michael Romeo. I'm like, man, I'd yeah. love to hear him like just do a whole sci-fi album with James singing and Jordan coming up with God knows what, you know. And That's Mangini. a great fucking idea. How can we you make that happen? <laughs> yeah, we had like, I can't think we had like him. It was like the guy from Nevermore. Was it Jeff Loomis? I don't know, we're yeah. trying to come up with names and Marco Sfogli. Yeah, Mar- yeah, Marco and um, I don't know. I think I said Tony McAlpine, which I don't know if that would work, but I don't, I don't remember who all. But that was literally the, the first guy that I thought made the most sense. Like basically, okay, when well, he gets to do one album and they tour and all they play is that album that he did with them. I think that was kind of like our our rules or something. But yeah, no, I mean you're right. And, you know, and Joe, to your point, I, I you know. It does seem like, and it's, but it's kind of, it never really changed from this though. You know, it's been, Hey, 
I'm Michael Romeo. I'm the guitar shredder. Check me out. Which I think I don't think is a bad thing in the context of this band because it's not like Ingve where it's just like let me just shit all over everybody else in the band. Like I'm just going to go and f you. Like Michael Romeo, the stuff like it, it fits. Like his riffs, as busy as they can be and whatnot, it does fit into a normal song structure. And I've had the complaint, you know, mentioning Dream Theater. Sometimes in the middle of a chorus, they'll do a dan 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 a little bit long between lines here and there. Whereas I didn't get that a single time with Symphony X. There is that like it's just that little kind of spike spike part here. I call it a spike part because I'm terrible at the musicianship aspect of things and the actual terms. But you know, it's that little split second and then you go you're back into the chords and like the meat of the chorus. And I think they do that very well. So it's the mid nineties where being progressive was still playing in 4-4 because the drummer's got a double bass rush through everything but then occasionally (laughs) we count to five and then we go back into the original riff and that really starts to show in 1996 I bring you both to the divine wings of tragedy I would say my first note I think defines the record for me and it's not about the keys this time Sea of Lies the up and down shred unison solo between the keys and the guitar was awesome. And that stuck out to me on this record so strongly. And there were very few moments in the entire catalog that I was that I could actually pinpoint if I was to go back and listen. But that part to me just stuck in my head like that was phenomenal. And it was the first time that I had had that moment, you know, and, and granted, it's only the third record, but... It's not like, you know, I could go back and, you know, I remember Masquerade, the song Masquerade on the first record was cool, but there wasn't like that one thing that just like stuck to me like, oh yeah, remember that part? Remember that part? And that, that unison solo in Sea of Lies absolutely did it for me. Of Sins and Shadow is the best album opener, I think. It really sets you up for what this band is, past, present, future. Well, his vocals are cutting through even more too. It feels like he's more confident on what they're trying to do. Right, it's been a year, so now the band is in the studio again. Hey, dude, can you, can you turn my vocals up just a little bit more than last time? <laughs> yep. We all agree. We listened to this one in the car. It didn't sound like Symphony X. You could barely hear what I was enunciating. We need some more of those layers and more of those multi-person choruses right up front where we can hear them. Well, even even on like CLI's with John talking about, I had some notes on that one. And if you noticed, in the second verse, the guitar tone goes totally clean. So you're getting that awesome dynamics because this one starts out too with the bass guitar also starts the riff and then the guitar, the regular guitar is doubling it. But then when you get to the second verse, like, oh, let's change it up. Let's go to the clean tone and those little subtle dynamics, they're starting to kind of do those. And that's what separates like the bands that are like, you know, kind of good at this stuff or, or pretty good at it from the bands that really, really are great at doing it. It's just throwing in enough of those little nuances, you know, throughout the building of these songs. Yeah. And, and to me, you know, I, you know, one of my notes, it's it's like the previous two albums, just better in terms of production and songwriting. And again, it's you know, we'll I'll beat that dead horse, you know, for the rest of the episode, but they they just Leave have this Bojack nat- alone, John. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean I mean that's the thing, is it's like they did identify their sound right away and then it kind of seemed like they went back and listened to the previous record and said, Okay, we need to we need to beef this up. We need to beef this up. I mean, they were. it really sounds like a band to me that is cognizant of their shortcomings and also cognizant of their strengths and continue to work on both areas 
as their career progressed, which which I think is really, really admirable. They weren't interested in, well, let's, you know, like I said earlier, take a left turn. Let's do something wonky. Let's throw this in for the, for the fans. We think they'd like this. They're like, no, we like doing this. We're getting a good response doing this. So let's just take the good parts and make them even better. And let's take the parts that we think are a little off and let's fix that. Now, I'm going to be fair to John. I don't know what your notes are on this one. It should be crucifying some of the keyboard sounds on the accolade. So a killer opening electric guitar riff, right? That is right then in my you notes. you have this really skitterish electric string. I guess it's a fake string sound doing these solos. And the sound on it is absolutely horrendous. So that, to me, I will definitely go with you on that one then there's maybe about three songs i don't know if they're on this album throughout the catalog and the early albums where he pulls out this just a fake string sound which is fine when you're layering it and they're like the swelled strings behind everything but when you're trying to do like these almost like these staccato strings or these solo things with it it sounds really bad and really fake and it ruins like a song that has a killer melody line and it has almost has that kansas piano breakdown in the middle of this one too but i can't stand that I don't know. It's like a fake electric violin or something in the beginning there. It just almost kind of ruins a song from the beginning, and which which ends up having a killer course to it. Yep. Well, Ryan, I mean, you're taking me back to the early days of writing music and having access to a four track recorder and whatever free music notation software I could find on the internet, download over my 56k modem. So yeah, this song idea has strings in it. And they are the most artificial MIDI strings you've ever heard in your fucking life. And guess what? If that's all I had, it's ending up on the CD, and I did not give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Just don't make them the lead instrument playing leads. Yeah, that was a interesting choice. It sounds like he's swelling the volume because, you know, you play synth, right, Brian? So you can reach over to the left. There's a volume slider there and a little bendy. So you can bend notes, too, and play the blues. I have a it, note on the, on the next song, too, John. This is where my, I got my first, well, I'm going to go next on Pharaoh. Did anyone else get the hint? I got the first hint of Metropolis here. I Maybe did. Second hint. Actually, I, ha- I said I have a hint of Metropolis here again. I don't know what the first one was. There's a lot of Metropolis <laughs> on this album. Here. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, a few. Yeah, there, I, I think this is the record that starts showing a little bit of the little too obvious Dream Theater references here and there. Uh, but, uh, ironically, Pharaoh... I, the thing that I noticed is, is that this is the first time you really get the really heavy parts that they started kind of kind of leaning on in a couple of records. Like, but this was the it's the one thing I noticed was missing on on the first couple of records. I'm like, where the where the hell is like some actual just like Metallica, Megadeth, like you know, just just drop it down and kick some ass. Hang on for a few more years, John. It's coming. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And Pharaoh, when that when those heavy parts kicked in, I my note says Pharaoh, those heavy parts are kick ass. Where's more of that? You know, it's I mean it's funny, like our notes are similar. Like I I, I just thought that there needed to be more of that in the early records. And man, the accolade and you know, I do have a note about the keyboard sound. I, and I, but I will say, Brian, like you like the middle part of the song of, of the accolade, and that's the part that I have I'm like, I'm not a fan of that a cappella part. The rest of the song I was I love. It's got a phenomenal intro. I love the whole song, but that that middle part with the acapella, I was like, okay, let's move on. But yeah, going to your point about Pharaoh, that's you know, it's kind of that metal one on one. I always can never remember. I guess it's Lydian mode or is it Phrygian mode when you get that Egyptian sounding riff? You know, Phrygian. 
Phrygian, yeah. Okay, thank you. It's usually E minor, A minor, maybe sometimes D minor, but you know they're just they're hammering away on that. And then throughout the rest of the catalog, you you get about four of those an album. You know, similar to Dream Theater, they hammer away on that riff too. A lot of the times, they seem yep. to get away with it more, I guess, because they change it up so people don't totally notice what they're doing. But it's in there for sure. <laughs> Are you ready for Twilight in Olympus? I'm ready for 1998. Lucky for you, John. This band is going to deliver all of the speed, all of the shred. Symphony X still sounds like Symphony X. That's a good thing. Were you ready for this much shred in the beginning of the album, though? I think it's a natural progression. I, I think it's once you've done what they've done on the first three records, again, it's they progress. And I think by this point, you know, once you've once you've got three albums under your belt, you're established firmly with your fan base and for something that's kind of like a niche type of a band as brian called them earlier you're starting to get some outside recognition and obviously what's going to get recognized is the instrumentation most specifically the guitars and so when you start getting that you know michael romeo's like all right you like guitar well check this shit out just <laughs> like, turn that shit right up yeah and and for me as much as you know the albums are you know all pretty much the same just they get better and better and better i do love shred guitar man and it, if it's just a guitar player, like, all right, cool. I'm in, man. I am in. So I, I loved it. Yeah, the first two on this, um, especially the first one, we got another one of those Bach metal intros to start a song, which, you know, again, it, they do it a lot, but I don't care. It's always cool. <laughs> so, you know, get, Let's get it right on. out of the way. Bach is the most metal musician of all time. Oh, he is. He is. <laughs> He resolves everything perfectly. He can combine some minor and some major, and it's like I don't know. It just makes you feel good. And uh, but yeah, it, but then we get to the second song, which is honestly "Church of the Machine." This is probably my favorite song off of these these first early three or four albums. There's a real sticks pieces of eight vibe to the course on this. I don't I'm know, so you glad probably, you brought that you guys, up. You guys might be way too young for that. I'm sure John has no idea what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, <laughs> but then it goes into... He's over there sailing away on his yeah. <laughs> uh, hunk of junk. But then it Mr. Goes Roboto, into, what? <laughs> a, uh, another trick they do, this is like one of the third tricks they do, it's that tubular bells exorcist keyboard riff that that gets pulled out probably yes. three yeah. songs per album of variation. Now, every, every, every metal band on the planet has done it, including, you know, Jordan did it, you know, on, on Forsaken. You know, that's, let's, not, let's not kid ourselves here. But every band on the planet has done some riff of that. But they they're able to, to you know, it's that kind of ominous, little tinkly, evil sounding keyboard, you know, riff that's just sort of a circular thing, um, in that song. But it, that Church of the Machines just this big giant behemoth course on it, you know, and a very sticks influence. And I, I like how big it's they're starting to sound. Yeah, I my notes start out with still with the crappy keyboard sound, smoke and mirrors. Okay, seriously. Someone buy this band a decent keyboard rig. Did somebody like, say the mirror? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, that was wishful no, thinking on my part. No, but we'll 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 get to something similar. <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, this is. I, I think this record and the new mythology suite are kind of when they hit. I won't say a rut, but it's kind of similar because the production value is pretty much the same. The album's pretty much the same. I mean, there's more shred guitar like we talked about, but I think it's kind of like. They kind of just kind of did the same thing mostly for three records, at least to my ears. Uh, I will say in the Dragon's Den, that drum intro kicks ass. That was yep. bad as hell. So, and, and that's one thing I don't think we've mentioned at all 
is the fact that, you know, the drumming on these records has just been fantastic. For the most it's, part, he just floors straight ahead. Yeah. But even in 1998, that's what you wanted. If you were a heavy band, it wasn't about the groove. It was about the march. It was about yeah. the onslaught of double bass. There was a point, and I remember it wasn't that long ago, where double bass was, can you play the meter? And that's it. And I don't know why we got away with it for so long. Well, and I, I you know, he does some stuff, especially, you know, especially, you know, in the first, you know, four or five records, I would think like, I mean, this is like before Pro Tools was like really the, the way to go, you know, and, and I, I get it like 98, 2000, you know, right around that time. Yeah. But I mean, he was doing these speed fills that were just absolutely razor sharp. I mean, like crazy fast stuff. And it, 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 I know this is probably ignorant of me, but it made me wonder on future records, like, did they even need to grid those drums? Like, I mean, the guy obviously was nailing it prior to that. You know, as well as I do, if they gridded the drums, it wasn't because they had to. It yes. was because they were used to doing it. And yeah, yeah I had the same thought at one point. Are these yeah. even real anymore? Do they even need to be real? Because that's what I think of. And I think it's okay to have a random snare hit as much as I like to criticize triggers and not actually playing your parts. Uh, the keyboardist has been playing a fake piano for a decade now, so it's fine. Whatever, guys. I can't love <laughs> Pull Me Under as much as I do and not appreciate the sound of a triggered snare. So just let it go. Move on. It sounds great. It's the best sounding album up until this point, which is good when you're mostly self-producing or independently making these albums. My only problem on this one is that third song, Sonata. Like, I guess it's just by some dude named Beethoven. <laughs> I, I don't know who this Beethoven dude but It's just like, if this is the kind of stuff he's going to, like, crank out... Brian, get out of my house. Nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it's like the only one that I, that's not written by one of the guys in the band, so I have no idea who this dude is. You but. are not allowed <laughs> to reference the great Ludwig von Beethoven if you are not the Trans-Siberian Orchestra in 1998. <laughs> now, is he allowed to reference Surrounded by Dream Theater, which is actually the intro to the looking uh, through the looking glass from this record? Brian, is that the one you were thinking of earlier? Uh, my notes say this is John's Dream Theater song. I didn't have to look far to figure this out. Yes, that's exactly. Yes. I have I ha Surrounded and other stuff. Um, you know, really cool piano parts, but, you know, that descending string uh, line, that's fairly fairly well seems like it was lifted from that it must have been a loop that was built into the keyboard and everybody hit it one time that year and said you know what this is the perfect intro i get to do the yes <laughs> thing and just hit the button and then it goes dee -doo -doo -dee -dee -doo -dee -doo for the next five minutes and nobody told him that dream theater already did that i don't think it's... people paid attention to that as much as i did i remember especially back at this point being so hypercritical of this riff sounds exactly like that riff but no in this case that riff sounds exactly like that riff guys yeah. go back to the drawing board try again do a little inversion listen to beethoven <laughs> as brian said a second ago and just change it up it, it definitely like as soon as it came on i was like okay i get it like you know you're friends with mike portnoy like 
Maybe it was a Primus He's thing. Like, like they're playing YYZ just to fuck with the audience. <laughs> and these guys are just doing it to fuck with you. Be like, no, Dream Theater's not here. It's Symphony X. You're welcome. <laughs> it's on purpose. Yeah, I, still, I still think it ended up as a cool song. Like I, I don't mind it as a song. I think I think there's a lot of cool accents and things going on there. But yeah, it, it sure feels like that they were influenced by, you know, many things on images and words on this on this song for sure. Who well, this is? Well, yeah. I mean, it's basically <laughs> a perfect record, dude. Seriously, I have the I I have this like this so far is my favorite song on the first four records and go figure it's the most dream theater ish so i guess that's you know me being a complete and total fanboy sellout but i mean it is what it is you know i mean outside of the you know intro sounding like surrounded i'd love the vibe of it but you know i guess that's because it does sound the closest to a band that i'm really you know is really near and dear to my heart so um yeah i i just i'm with you joe i think it was a little close it was a little too just a little little too much dream theater in there to, to it wasn't subtle at this point it was like all right guys like, <laughs> you know, like so they have the same fans at this point and i think they had the same fans for a long time in the year 2000 i was not listening to a lot of symphony x and dream theater but i was aware of the bands because i was a guitar player and i had to learn it's a jam in its entirety and i did all the parts all the instruments i'm pretty proud of that because I was a young guitar player, and that was my definition of awesomeness. Can you play It's A Jam in its entirety? That has nothing to do with this album, but I do think that 5, the new mythology suite, is the most bullshit progressive metal album title you could possibly have. I would agree with you there. Uh, I My first impression of this was there was not a jump in production value for the first time. If there was, it was very minimal. So that's the first thing I noticed. And... The other thing I noticed was that they are definitely in their sound, but now they start adding some some newer stuff. Like I think this is the first record where you start getting some more evil sounding stuff. The other like prior to this record, it was pretty much all like symphonic and a lot of major key stuff. You almost got nothing that was kind of dark. This album starts adding some of the darkness to it, which is cool. Um, but again, you know, I noticed I was waiting for a progression to where's that song to really break things really break things up you know that that long ballad that big expressive ballad and it, it still really to me has not come i mean brian you said earlier that they've got ballads like yeah but i mean can you name them it's 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 pretty non-existent so and you know my next my next note uh get ready for this one uh stop with the fucking harpsichord asshole if this guy doesn't fucking stop using the goddamn harpsichord, enough is enough. You're not fucking Mozart in the fucking Amadeus movie. Way to steal my fucking line, Christ. John. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, son of a bitch. Like, at this point, it's pissing me off. Like, stop. It's not good. Like, everything's progressing around you, and you're stuck in cement. Like, you goddamn fool. Like, is this guy, like, on contract for a ham sandwich or something? Like, he's not getting paid anything, but he just wants to be the cool guy who's in a band? Like, look, Joe, we're, you know, or, or Frank, whatever the hell your name is, uh, your, your, per, your per diem is still $15 a week, but I need new equipment. Shut up. Just play your shit. Okay. What do you do? His, gets around his friends and family. I play keyboards in a band. Like, is that it? Because nothing has changed with this sound. I'm like, how is everything getting better and better and better? Albeit, you know, in smaller increments, but 
getting better and better and better. And this keyboard sound is still shit. John, the faster you play in a progressive metal band, the more percussive your keyboard sound has to be. And harpsichord is what you have to reach for when you're clearly influenced by Bach and all the neoclassical artists of the time. Yeah. I mean, mute Brian, because I don't even want to hear him defend this. You can't defend it anymore. When, when everything else around it's getting better and this just still sounds junky, like, again, especially Brian, you as a keyboard player, how are you defending this? It sounds like shit. I don't think there's that much actual pure harpsichord sound and stuff on this. It's a lot more like pipe organy kind of things going on. But I he mean, still brings the harpsichord into it, which get over it, you know? Hearing the solos and stuff, you know, if you're still talking about that one sound you don't like. But something, as far as stuff that sounds like pure harpsichord, I think that was only like on the first album. And then like maybe that stuff where that beef oven guy was doing <laughs> on, on the other one. But, uh, you know, I love the, I love the op- oh, oh, oh uh, side note. This is actually the first Mike LaPond album. I did have that in my notes. So this is when he officially joined. So this is the true band of everybody who's been in the band since this album. I'm currently in it. But, uh, okay. you know, it's also, I, I love that giant cinematic opening. You know, it's got the diabolical Latin choir, you know, mixed with the metal, which that ends up being sort of what they end up doing on these last three albums, too, which... Dude, I mean, open an, open an album and a show like that every freaking time and just just pile it on. Like, because I think it sounds yeah. absolutely amazing. But this is where he grew. He, I see the evolution of Russell Allen. He goes into two different singers. This is when I think he goes almost full-blown Joe Lynn Turner. So he's a guy that starts kind of his own way. And then I believe he goes into a Joe Lynn Turner and he, late, he later kind of turns into more of basically almost a Dio, you know, mixed with, with his natural voice but i love the way his voice is, is sort of progressing into that Jolyn turner it's it's a bluesiness to it but there's like a desperation to it also and a raspiness to it you know it's starting to incorporate some of the raspiness but does but not the true total grit that ends up coming later yeah and I, dude I, I think that's an excellent point because you get the best parts of his voice that you're used to but it adds a muscular nature to it i mean it's 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 not like you're hearing someone where their their voice is changing. He's just adding to it. Like his voice is almost like a perfect like microcosm of the sound of the band. It's you know he could do the high powerful stuff and he could do the high operatic stuff. Well now here's this like you know heavy like James Hetfield ish stuff without losing any of the other things that you liked about his voice. I mean it's like it's like basically building a Lego set. You know a vo- it's it's incredible. The guy's voice just keeps getting more and more powerful and adding layers to it which you know i think really it really starts setting certain songs apart like because there are as much as they don't change much throughout the years he really gives some guttural you know vocal performances on some cleaner songs down the down the road i think and of all the bands that should have performed with a full symphony and a full choir why hasn't this band done it i made fun of the title but that was in jest this is a solid record it is the symphony x that you want especially in the year 2000 so why hasn't this band done it why haven't they had that opportunity financially i think i mean i looked yeah you know full disclosure i looked the other day because i still don't have my symphony x tickets i mean they they have half of the balcony still still for sale here at the agora which i mean john what does that hold 1200 i don't know is that being kind no, I think it's closer to 2000, like 1800 or something like that. 1800, okay. Yeah, but 18, I mean, I'm pretty so. damn sure that they don't have even a thousand tickets sold yet for that, just from looking at it. I could be wrong. 
and it sucks. I mean, I haven't even bought my ticket yet. I'm going to buy it. And I'm going to go, but it's like, you know, they just, they just don't get the support here in the States. That's for damn sure. Well, I think, I think you could say that about pretty much almost any band in this genre. I mean, yeah, I mean, Brian, you're a big fan of Sabaton, but I mean, how often do you see Sabaton on there? Here's, here's our U S tour. Like it yep. just doesn't happen. And there's so many bands that we're all like really familiar with the names that none of us have ever seen live for that exact reason. Like over in Europe, it's like the biggest thing. And over here, people are like, eh, okay. And you know, the, for some reason, the fans that are here don't pony up money for the tickets. I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't, I don't get it either. Let's get to 2002 and the Odyssey. This is a good jump in production value. I think this is where you really start seeing them actually take that. This is like a kind of like a springboard, I guess, like a in between from their early early production value and the early kind of eighties ish, kind of stuck in that thin sound to what you're going to get on the next record. I think this is finally where you go, oh wow, like. If you're a Symphony X fan and you've heard the first five records, you put this and you're like, oh shit, wow, okay, wow. You know, I, I used the, you know, the word steroids earlier. This one has got some steroids compared to the early stuff. And it's heavier right off the bat. It, you know, Wicked has an insanely cool groove to it. So this is where they really start getting into that. Okay, instead of all the for their main riffs, Michael Romeo finally was like, you know what? I've listened to some Pantera here and there and some Symphony of Destruction and some, you know, throw in a little bit of Enter Sandman. And I think that's what I'm going to base my, my, my riff writing off of going forward. That's what sets this record apart, but really sets the forthcoming three records apart is that the change in riff writing where the noodle parts, I would say, for lack of a better term, are used as flavoring for the main riffs instead of being the main riffs themselves. The worst thing you can do when you're playing progressive metal is not be interesting. I cannot count how many bands, how many songs I've heard where the expectation is that you just sit there and you take what the band is giving you, no matter how random it sounds, no matter how long they've been soloing. And I understand every band has the freedom to do whatever they want to do live but there is something about heavy metal guitar that really has not changed since tony iomi wrote black sabbath and that is the riff has to be interesting otherwise i am not engaged and if you're a metal band i don't care if you're primarily a keyboardist if you're the bass player and you want to be lemmy or you don't want to be lemmy if the drummer is going to double bass onslaught everything if the best reference you have is everything dimebag daryl did back in the early 90s great starting point for your progressive metal band because (laughs) it's heavy as fuck and it's interesting and the leads are supposed to accentuate the riff. This is the early 2000s. We're still not trying to be a single solo guitarist. Everybody is finishing up. Everybody is either finishing up their new metal or they are trying to innovate and go be hardcore and create these random sounds of strings being slapped against the wall, which is fine. I enjoy that sometimes too. Not as much as my co-hosts, but Symphony X, <laughs> I don't want that random slather of riffs, but I want the riff to be interesting enough that I care about the solo. 
And I don't know about you guys, but when I'm listening to some really good progressive metal and the keyboardist can fucking play, I don't care if he's a Gene Autry fan and is just rolling his fingers down the line. I just want it to fucking be interesting. And it's not interesting if you start off with the slather of butter. You have to build and toast the bread and apply the garlic on just the right layer. I don't know why I started talking about food, but help me out here, John. Get me out of this. I'm just enjoying this album so much because they've actually gone to the next level. You are preaching something that I have bitched about how many times on our show, John, regarding one Iron Maiden. Where are the guitar riffs? Please go camp out at Yannick Gears, Adrian Smith, Dave Murray's porch and just stand there with them with a guitar and show them how to come up with a cool cool riff not a song structure of the same not a chord structure a riff you need a guitar riff and that's where like you said this band starts out with some pretty okay riffs and the riffs just get better and better and bigger and heavier you start getting these these hammer-on trill like squawky you know dime bag type sounds coming coming off you know you get more a little bit more syncopation like we were talking about you know, the guitar riffs are there. Where the hell have they been on the last 17 Iron Maiden albums since like 2000? Brian, I, w- I want to give you, you something. Just, I just want to give you this copy of Holy Wars. Okay. Go home, listen to that. Okay. Now come back with 15 of those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect example. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Brian. It's And with you as well, Joe. I mean, like you, you referenced garlic bread and making delicious garlic bread. Like that's, dude... Now I'm trying to figure out a food analogy to your garlic bread. I, I would I would I would say it I would say it like this. Go for the obvious, John. I have faith I, in you. No, no, no. I, I I'm Italian, and I will say that you know these first five records. It was like you you can buy Texas toast, you can buy freezer section breadsticks, or you can go to the Italian grocery store. You can get a loaf of fresh baked Italian bread. You can slice that off. Can I pick up Dust- some prosciutto while I'm there? A brajute is, is yeah, not prosciutto, it's brajute, but you know, hey, who's counting? Uh, and you you slice it perfectly, you know, you 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 know, you, you make the butter, and you just do everything right, and you put it in the oven, and you brown it nicely, you know, just that little bit, and you can when you it looks the same as the Texas toast, almost the same, but when you put it in your mouth, it is different and it is better, and you can tell immediately why, and I think. You know, hopefully that makes sense in terms of this record because it's all garlic bread. But this one is where you start getting the homemade garlic bread. You're not going to Olive Garden. You're going to the mom and pop Italian place in Little Italy. So, And they give a damn what their sauce tastes like. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the opener on here was the, literally the first time I'd ever heard this band because as I was telling you guys, um, the Gigantor tour, when I found out they were coming, I went and researched... And I'm like, okay, what's some of the songs off the most recent album, which just happened to be this, which was still three years old at the time. And the first song that came up was this. And I heard this and I'm like, oh my God, this is freaking amazing. I haven't heard anything like this since the Yngwie days. And this like sounds 10 times heavier and 10 times better, you know? And like you said, you know, immediately then it goes into Wicked. I think they played like four, they only played six songs. And I think two of them were those first two there. But uh, yeah, just a just a great great album, and it you know the production on it's better. The drums are, are more in your face, and you know the bass. You can actually hear some bass on this. You know who knew there was a bass player yeah. in the band? You know there's yeah. there's got a little bit of low end there, kicking you in the butt some. But yeah, you know back to Joe's point, like 
there's no point in having a metal band unless you can can make killer guitar riffs. You know, just, there just isn't. And there's a few instances of this band where there's some cool things where the keyboard will drive the song. And I'm fine with that. You know, three or four songs, a couple songs, an album or whatever, where guitar maybe takes a small backseat, but it's got to drive and it's got to have that riff. It's It's been more noodling up to this point, I would say. It's not that, you know, driving central riff to it. And I think that's what sets it apart. You know, this is finally the record where, you know, the first five, you're like, man, I like this, but you know what I really wish they would add in is this and this. And if you if you have a pile of, of ideas, let's say you have, you like the first five records, and then you have 10 things you wish that they would do on, you know, going forward, you get five of them on this record. You're like, oh, okay, we're getting close. We're getting close. We're about halfway there. So this is definitely like a stepping stone type of a record to what you're going to get going forward. Um, the one thing I will say, The Odyssey, it's a 20-minute Symphony X song. And I'm sorry, but it's difficult enough for a band like Dream Theater to keep somebody's interest for you know 20 minutes. But for a band like Symphony X that has been you know just over a one-trick pony for five records, it's really difficult. And I will say that, you know, the beginning part is awesome because that part, it sounds like it's right out of some 80s, like hard rock action adventure movie soundtrack. Like if it was like kind of like more a metal based type of a thing, like that just sounds like a heavy metal back to the future intro, <laughs> like or soundtrack to me. That's what I heard. But then as the song was going on, I was like, OK, let's 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 go. Let's go. Let's go. And it just didn't hold my interest like a 20 minute dream theater song does and and it's not just because it's dream theater i just think dream theater puts enough like varying parts and like it's like a roller coaster whereas this one's kind of more like you know going down the pacific coast highway like yeah it's beautiful but god damn this thing goes on forever and i've already seen the ocean i've already seen the mountain you know i've already seen you know and doing that variance. long drawn out piece doesn't feel as clean as just doing the album that way when your whole album is the piece you don't need a 20-minute what ends up sounding like improvisation or just an ongoing musical idea. I think about some of my favorite Rush albums. What you hear live is a 15-minute summary of that album because we had to stick in all this extra stuff that we decided later on we didn't need because the idea was there. It was complete. And all we had to do was trim the fat, and you have a 12-minute amazing, epic, progressive song. I think based on on the, you know, the subject of this, like I understand why it's twenty four minutes. I, do I think it's the greatest piece of progressive metal in history? No, but you know, if you're talking about, you know, where you've got vinyl and this is going to just take up a whole side or, you know, something along those lines, I think it's fine. It's cool enough for what it is. I mean, this is something you know, the strictly probably the hardcore. You know, John and I talk, you know, about Dream Theater. We're like, oh, what's the songs that we can get everyone into? You know, this is not going to be one of those if you're trying to get people into Symphony X. Hey, throw on the Odyssey. That's not, that's probably not going <laughs> right. to sell them. But before this, there's some killer stuff. Um, I mean, you, you actually have a song on here about becoming a werewolf. I mean, what the hell could be cooler than that, right? The turning. It's like, it's like this galloping metal masterpiece, you know? And then the one before that, it's uh, King of Terrors. I have that down as like, probably their their most crushing evil riff you know out of all the albums to date you know it's the heaviest song they've done the vocals are super super heavy um but you know kind of like you guys are saying 
I'm not a fan of, okay, if we're listening to, like, these are all kind of cool individual songs. And then all of a sudden we get to this giant, you know, thing. And maybe if it's an album and you're going to flip it and you're like, oh, never mind, I'm not going to flip it now. I just, I'll just stick with those first ones. Or you even have the option now, obviously digitally, you can, you can tune it out, but it's kind of bombastic. It's, you know, it sort of falls in that ELP category of, they're an incredibly great band. Do I want to sit there and listen to ELP all day if I really think about it? No, I don't. <laughs> Good analogy there, man. So we got garlic bread and we've got ELP. This is we've really covered uh, covered a range of topics on this record. <laughs> Let's get to Paradise Lost, 2007. Fuck yes. Fuck yes. The most epic opening on any album in the history of metal i feel like we're gonna go have a battle in a ridley scott movie when this thing starts like we're gonna take over the fortress during the crusades or something this is god of war the soundtrack they wish they had (laughs) yeah and i don't even know what that is other than it's a video game but uh actually (laughs) i i i can't get any video game references i'll just tell you right off the bat but you know what it's funny is i actually have this i have a, a playlist called run when i go running and this is the first song on there. You talk about getting like your juices going to start off a run. I'm not even sure how to follow that. I just think it's an epic progressive metal album. You know, you don't get the the video game references because you're so old. You don't even get a reference to Pong. But um, yeah, and, and funny, you, you've got a playlist. Uh, but when you go running titled run, that's very creative. Um, yeah, this is a monstrous album opener. I on the t- off the top of my head, I can't say greatest metal album opener ever I, I'm always privy to uh, Blackened from the Injustice for All record myself but you know that's th- a contender I, I'll give you that th- one for now that's it's amazing but you know Brian you mentioned it on the previous record they have these enormous intros and it just became they're like you know what we did it once we're just going to do it on the rest of the records it became kind of like their calling card and it does sound movie-ish you know it's they do this thing where they have these pieces of music that sound like they're straight out of a movie soundtrack. If you if you took like something from a movie soundtrack that was done with a, with an orchestra and all that, but made it heavy metal, that's what it sounds like. And that's that's what this record has. And you know, I said about the Odyssey that if you liked the first several records, and then you're like, well, oh, I've got this list of ten things I wish they would do. The Odyssey's got five. Well, Paradise Lost has the complete list and then goes beyond by about seven or eight things. Cause now you get some production value where you're like, Holy shit. Like this is what I wanted to hear all along. Like I, I love the songwriting. I love the structuring. I love the guitar. Russell Allen's vocals keep getting stronger and stronger. Now the production is muscular as fuck. Like it's like the total package. It's what you've been waiting for as a symphony X fan, that explosion of, Fuck yes, this is my band. This is the modern step forward for a new fan. I don't want a new fan to go back and listen to the previous albums. I don't want to give them the new mythology suite. I don't want to give them Twilight and Olympus. I want them to start with Paradise Lost. If you've never sat and listened to Neoclassical, this is possibly the greatest stepping on point because it sounds modern enough but still has the classic feel. And at this point, people are starting to listen to bands like Between the Baird and Me, who take the progressive metal thing so much further that when you're going to bring them back to 
Symphony X, it's not just about the time signatures and the changes. It's about the riffs, the time signatures, the changes, the power behind that voice, and the onslaught of what you're about to experience. It's possibly the best starting point for this band. Not necessarily for me, but for someone who is not into this kind of music, this is where I want you to jump in. You're either in for this one, or you don't need to be here. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, and John, you know, I don't make fun of your playlist that you have, you know, nap and eat donuts, because I said that's <laughs> inappropriately named. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> careful, he's going for his Gatlin gun. Yeah, but yeah, we got a full level of production here. Everything you said about this, Joe, is, is dead on. Like, and it's it's partially like why when I went back, it's hard to go back probably further than the Odyssey, you know, just in terms of production and, and what the band was, and that's not what they are anymore. And they grew into this awesome, you know, just just giant metal machine, you know, without sounding corny. But the, all the riffs on this, I mean, Domination, Serpent's Kiss, I mean, Paradise Lost, I mean, probably my favorite piano melody and probably my favorite vocal. I mean, there, John, you talk about like, there's no ballads. This is a straight up ginormous banger of a ballad. I mean, probably their most beautiful piece of just melodic music, you know, and it's not super long. And his voice just sounds amazing on the piano. It's bright, full, you know, it's just a killer, killer piano and killer vocal on this song. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with anything you guys say about this one. I mean, I literally was writing notes, and I have like a, like a dash, and I just wrote, okay, this shit rocks. Like I was into this record, you know, uh, Joe. To your point, like this is a starting point. You know, if you're into this type of music, but for me, this was a starting point for the band. Like when when the idea came up to do this episode, and you were looking for people, I thought, oh man, you know, Brian loves Symphony X. Oh, let's I can get you Brian to do Symphony X. They're like, well, you have to do it too. And my first thought was, well, I do like I do really like that Paradise Lost record. And it's the only thing I'd heard, but I mean Brian introduced it to me when it came out in 2007. He's like, you gotta listen to this. And I was like, all right, this kicks ass. Like, yeah, this is this is damn good. Um it, you know, I I'm gonna throw it in again because I have to. My my three notes, you know, I right off the bat another movie sounding piece have to admit these they do this pretty well and this is now we're getting into some kick-ass production value my third note i'm still gonna dick punch that keyboard player if i ever see him <laughs> it's still as great as it is it just it still hasn't improved so you know anybody listening to this is going to be like you need to stop mentioning the keys well it's not going to happen i apologize for that but it's really that bad but it's funny brian you mentioned domination i wrote that one down that weird chord thing in the middle where it's just dun, 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 dun. and you're like okay that's really cool but then it just keeps doing it while the rest of the song is going on underneath it and it's like it's almost ad nauseum but if I, it's almost like you know a funny joke that you beat into the ground where it's like okay it's funny and they're like okay you've told that joke enough stop 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 then and you, you keep doing it enough to where it's funny again that's what that riff reminds me of the one thing about this album that might be hard for a new listener is the power metal voice. I think it fell out of taste in the mid-2000s. And not for me, because I've been listening to it the whole time. But that's one of the things casual fans and new fans of metal always point to and say, that's the stereotype I can't get behind. Do you think there's, a, do you think there's enough heaviness to a lot of the parts, though, to make it almost like a crossover? Like, I get, like some of the soaring parts people are like yeah i'm not into that 
but I hear I hear a lot of grit in this, and a lot of e- even with some of the soaring stuff, there's that added power to it. It's so. I mean, do you think that? I don't know. I, I don't know how to phrase the question. Like, I I guess I think like, the definition of heavy changed. And it's okay. slowly working its way backwards, not just with modern metal and melodic voices being more accepted again, but classic heavy metal bands coming back like Judas Priest with a new album that blows away most of what you've heard for the past 15 years. But at that time, it was the most overdone stereotype of classic metal that I think modern fans just did not like it. And for me, it was better than ever. I'll say this. Russell Allen's voice on this stuff is amazing. And I can kind of see maybe your point about people tired of that voice. I can't stand the singing style he does on the Adrenaline Mob because it's not that far off, but the songs are just really bad, almost new metal, 90s. I don't know what what bad... um, Disturbed, I guess. Well, you guys, maybe you hate Disturbed anyway, but <laughs> I mean, at least they, you know, they, at least they try to do stuff that's catchy and whatever. Like that adrenaline, this, it just sounded like they tried too hard. And when you're doing that kind of voice over that stuff, where it's just so super forced, whereas this is just a natural thing that Romeo does with these riffs, and it's like, oh, let's get, let's get the guy who's basically the next Ryan James Dio to sing on it. I mean, I think it sounds amazing, and I don't think anyone else sounds this has a voice in the style that he has and to this date I still don't think there is I, I think you're a thousand percent correct Brian because when I heard Adrenaline Mob I had only heard the Paradise Lost record and so it I wasn't aware that that's Russell Allen and when I listened to the Adrenaline Mob record I did it because you know being a Dream Theater guy I'm like okay so this is Portnoy's you know original band like right after Dream Theater whatever and it's like, oh, I got, you know, Russell Allen. He's this awesome singer. And I was like, this doesn't fit the music at all. Like, this guy, what is this? Like, this is just, I I mean, you nailed it right on the head, Brian. It was like a guy trying too hard to sing a style that he's not really suited for. And I was like, what? who is this guy? Like, why? why is this? Like, is this what he does? And he's legendary for this? So then, you know, when I went back and listen to this stuff you know for this episode the symphony x stuff i was like okay now i get why the guy is an icon and it really made the adrenaline bob stuff stand out as yeah that's not that's not his finest moment because that's just not what he does it makes you think they're messing with you like progressive metal icons are getting together and jamming and what they're giving you is not what you expect to the point of it's a joke hey dude whatever you do just don't use that voice just all medium see what everybody says about that ha 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 that band was like the biggest tease in history because remember the video for the cover of mob rules like that smoked i mean he sounded absolutely absolutely amazing on that and you're like i can't wait to hear this album oh my god and then the album comes out and you're like oh my (laughs) god this they tried to make him be like sully erner or something like this is (laughs) this is absolutely like portnoy's like i don't know it's just just pretty rough for me. I don't know they what to say just, to that. They, 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 they should have just called that album "Sad Trombone." That's like it's. it's they really should have. Wow, John. I, th- I don't know a single Dream Theater fan that's like, man, Omerta, that album rocks. Adrenaline Mob is amazing. Like everybody I've talked to is like, Liquid Tension like a- Experiment is the definitive instrumental metal. 
Well, well, I mean, they put together a killer band. Like the album covers are really cool. Like the idea, but you're like, oh, you know. But it's like we talked about this before. You just can't like throw four guys who are amazing musicians and oh, we magically got a bunch of great songs. Like, no, doesn't really work that way. Yeah. Well, let's get this train rolling into 2011's Iconoclast. I think this is the album I was most interested in hearing Brian's thoughts on because it's the middle of what I consider to be the modern Symphony X run and it brings back some of those progressive tropes and using that symphonic movie soundtrack sound but we're laying back a little bit yes the productions forward but it sounds like we brought the drums up i feel like this band every single album picks another instrument to turn up 2db and eventually we're going to get a well mastered even album sometime in 2025 maybe who knows yeah the very first time i I remember i think i bought this if not the day it came out pretty damn close i you know another one i got at best buy i i don't know what to say about the song other than this has been my favorite tune from this band since the day this album came out like this the title track from this is just it's 11 minutes long but john i talked this before about some of these dream theater songs where i had 17 minutes that feels like four you know like this does not feel like an 11 minute song i mean it's just a brutal onslaught of riffing i mean that ridiculous riff massive course in the song you know you got you kind of got some of those latin chants going in the background you know I love when they kind of get that chanting thing and you almost have it sounds like a hammer and it hitting an anvil. It's what I call like the building the orc army thing that they do. You know, <laughs> Fuck yes. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, I love when they do that. Like they do that in the, like, I don't know, four or five different songs. But uh, yeah, I mean, Iconoclast is just, you know, no pun intended, just a giant iconic song. And and I think it's one they probably better. They I sure as hell hope they play it when I go see them next month. But then you go right into like Into the Innocence. And I love how... This one is one of the few times where a synth riff drives the song. It's one of those cool circular pedaling synth riffs where the guitar is going with it and it's just swelling around. You know, it's great melody on it and uh, just two giant bangers right out of the gate on this album. Yeah, I, you know, this one, you know, it continues the path of, you know, the production. Uh, I, th- I think this one, it's, it's still amazing. For me, listening to it back to back immediately with Paradise Lost, there was like a teeny, I think in the guitars, it was, the, the guitar wasn't quite as fat by like the littlest bit. But this record does get heavier, which is always cool when you blend, you know, the, you know this kind of like speed, you know, neoclassical metal with some actual heavy aspects. They added to the heaviness, which was really, really cool. Um, it's, it's it, you know, if, if you like Paradise Lost, you're definitely not disappointed with Iconoclast. The only thing that I would say, and I think this is the only step back they ever took in the entire discography, and it's you really have to listen for it. And honestly, I don't think I would have noticed it, Brian, had you not mentioned it to me. But, you know, Paradise Lost was the first time they had major, major label backing. Like that was they had some muscle and some money behind them. And there's a certain energy to the songwriting on the Paradise Lost record, you can tell they're like, you know, I mean, and, you know, we've all played in bands. When something's new and fresh to you, it does come through in the writing. And on Paradise Lost, there was that little bit of extra nuts to it. It was just like, you could tell they're like, fuck yeah, you know. We have a budget now. Yeah, and they were excited. And I think Iconoclast, it doesn't take that to the next level. It's still incredible. 
And I don't think that you would really notice that unless you kind of like really dig into there was a reason they were so excited for Paradise Lost. Whereas Iconoclast, it's four years later. They'd been through touring. They'd already done a record. That's like, you know, par for the course for them now. But you're not going to notice that unless it's something you listen to on this show or you go and research it on the internet and all that or you're a huge fan of the band. So, and I think it's so minor. And to me, that's literally the only step back they ever took. And it is so incredibly minor that it's it's ridiculous. Unfortunately, they didn't take a step forward on the keyboard sounds. But, you know, that'll happen when you're the guy in Symphony X. Um, you know, he I said a few records ago he had a $12.37 budget. Uh, I think at this point you can tell he got up to $12.39. So that's good. But, um, you know, hey, at least, you know, Frank or Joe or Fred, whatever the hell his name is, at least he's having a good time playing music mm-hmm. with his friends and seeing the world and whatnot. And, you know, that's good. Good for him. Yeah, you're getting all this out of your system, I hope, tonight. <laughs> you know, I, I'll be honest. The one thing about this album, I think while the first two songs boom right out of the gate, you get a three or four song middle where it's kind of sludgy. You don't have a lot of melody in the guitars. I think they're probably detuned to God knows what. Um, it gets a little, it gets a little weighty, but you end on just a, a, a killer note um, with a, you know another piano-driven song. Um, where are my notes here? Yeah, all is lost. It's probably my second favorite piano song of theirs. But you know, as much as I love this album, I'm there's no way I would sit here and say this that one through nine track to track is as strong as is paradise lost there's no way i'm not i'm not gonna say that but you know the first two are amazing the last one's amazing you know there's enough cool parts in the stuff in the middle but i think like bastards of the machine and like dehumanized like i don't know those are those kind of get into that sort of like we were saying before with adrenaline mile they kind of like uh, it's like a sort of a droney guitar part that doesn't really have a riff it's just sort of playing some big chunky low chords you know, there's not big giant melody there, but this is a dark, you know, dark album. So I kind of understand it. But, you know, again, I think it bogs down a tad in the middle for sure. As a metal fan who listens to all types of metal for different reasons and progressive metal being the one I listen to because I play drums, because I play guitar and I'm interested in the riffs, the technicality and some of the choices. I'm happy that this band, Symphony X, that for me was an outlier in the genre. I knew they existed, but I didn't really pay attention to where they had been for the past 10 years. This band not only got major label recognition, but they got a budget and Even though I've heard these songs, these riffs, these tricks dozens of times just from this band, they finally have the backing to get credit for how good they really are. I think that's the biggest thing that stands out for me on Iconoclast. If you weren't in on Symphony X, now you will be. And you can't say, well, the production's not so good. Because that's what people said in 1998 when you self-made yourself. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, and obviously at this stage in their career, the odds that they're going to make an album that doesn't sound up to these standards with the, with the technology that's available, no matter what kind of money you have, is probably probably pretty thin. But uh, yeah, you know, just another thing I always just love about this band that they always have a cool album cover. You know, they always got all the lyrics in there and everything. You know, they they put a lot of thought into. You know the the packaging and the image and you know they have one of the most i think one of the most iconic cool logos 
you know so they they take all this stuff very seriously and it, and it shows i think yeah the production and and the whole thing is excellent because I, I did look some of that stuff up and i mean brian it's funny because i have that in my notes you know the, like it sounds great it looks great and especially for it, it, this is kind of like that century media type of look you know we, we had at this time century media you know there are bands you might not have heard of or even ever heard and yet the production on everything was just absolutely killer to where if you you know, we're walking through a record store. It would just catch your eye. You're like, who the hell is that? And they may have sold, you know, 37 records worldwide, but it looked better than a friggin' Metallica record. So, you know, and, and you know, Paradise Lost kind of started that. Again, you know, these, the, you know, the three most recent records really are are almost the same in that respect in that you would, you would think from the production in terms of the music itself, but also like the visuals of everything, the way they're, they're presented publicly that this band is way bigger than they are, which kind of surprised me that they're not. You know, we said it real early on in the show, like, you know who Symphony X is. If you're into metal, you've heard Symphony X, like you've heard of Michael Romeo, especially if you're into more progressive stuff. You've definitely heard of Symphony X. You've definitely heard of Michael Romeo and Russell Allen as well. And yet they just never got that really big monstrous break. Like it's one thing to be on Gigantor, but, you know, I think, you know, if they had gone on tour with, you know, Joe, you mentioned Between the Buried to me, like do a package, you know, tour with them or, you know, be like a main support for a dream theater on a regular dream theater tour. Like, I just think they would have had so much more success than they've had. Agreed. It's that time. 2015's Underworld. Well, another killer intro. I mean... <laughs> The intro is a trope at this point, but you know what? It's progressive metal. You guys can have your intro. I love it. I mean, it's it. You know, you get those Latin stuff going. You know, you feel like Damien's going to jump out from behind somewhere. You know, I mean, it's just like. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, is there anything more? It's metal all for than, you. Yeah, exactly. You just you get that feel, and it's like, and then you know, you start into Nevermore, and you're like, I think I heard this riff before, but I don't care because it fucking sounds absolutely amazing. <laughs> Then you get to the chorus and you're kind of treated to like, oh man, this is like, it almost sounds like they tried to write a hit single here with the chorus. It's just a super catchy, you know, clean chord. Like the chorus goes major after all these crazy minor stuff going on. And I noticed throughout this album, they will kind of get to some major sounding choruses, which, you know, balances it a little bit. But uh, yeah, just a great, just a relentless, you know, another relentless kind of opener after that killer intro instrumental thing. Do you think they sit down at the writing session and say, okay, guys, what kind of intro do we want to have this time? Is it going to be Black Sabbath, Redux, or are we going to go for the Battlefield Earth symphonic random holes in the score mixed with dissonance? Do they plan all this out ahead of time? Because at this point, Symphony X has a structure. And for my ears, it sounds like Broadway. It sounds like film soundtrack. It just sounds like it's epic for the sake of being epic. And that is the ultimate trope of progressive metal, to be epic for the sake of being epic. Then they remember they're a heavy metal band and they show up with that double bass and it's the formula. And I love the formula. I'm fine with it. I think plenty of bands try to innovate and take the style forward in Symphony X. They just stuck to their fucking guns. They did the best they could. It's been 20 years and we're still playing that double bass shred moving forward with that keyboard sound that John Drake loves so much. <laughs> yeah. Still, still not a fan of that. 
I mean, Joe, I, I could not agree with you more because my very first note on this is, you know, by this point, if you're a Symphony X fan, you'll be happy with whatever they put out. If you aren't, there is nothing to draw in a new audience. I mean, at this point, you know, they're, let me, let me see, six, seven, eight. I mean, it's what, their 10th album, I think. And it's, you know what you're getting. I, I think it would be like an unbelievable culture shock if you got something other than a Symphony X record. And they're fine with that. And they've mastered it at this point. And it's, you know, again, you know, bring things full circle. Like I said, at, at, you know, beginning of the show, they're like ACDC. You're just, you know exactly what you're going to get when you go buy a Symphony X record. And this album is like kind of like the pinnacle of that. You know, this one in Paradise Lost, I think. Um, it's heavy. It's shred. It's neoclassic. Uh, Russell Allen's voice is just, I mean, and he hasn't lost a beat. I mean, that, that's one thing I will say about this. Like, you know, the guy's been in the band, you know, his, his first record was you know, 1995. And here we are 20 years later. And I get it. Like, you know, studio magic can do a lot of things, especially in 2015. But you can hear that he hasn't lost it. It's still there, that power and that the high range. It's it's not like he only hits like that high note two or three times on the record. Like, no, he's still doing that stuff. I mean, he's just still kicking ass. The whole band is just kicking ass. It's the Halford effect. You want that guy to be able to do that epic thing forever. And it's mm -hmm. just practically not possible for everyone. Question for the uh, authorities in the room. How many diehard Dream Theater fans have been waiting for James Labrie to truly get his voice back? <laughs> Dude, that's... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm biased on that, so I, I won't dig into that. I have a different back. You already know that. <laughs> it's just not. It's that's never coming back. He he cannot sing the way he used to. That's just a fact. He can do a lot of things to help himself and still sound incredibly awesome, but he's not going to sound like he did when he was 22 years old. That's not going to happen. And he's the most outspoken person about that, right? Yep. Very much so. So you for too. somebody who can't, at least from the perspective of the fan can't embrace who they are or who they have become with their voice here's an example of someone who's extremely lucky whatever decisions he's made to keep that voice it's still working it's still epic it's still amazing and having seen him live to go from that angelic beautiful sound to that low gritty heavy metal bark I can't think of another vocalist who just goes from point A to point B and is still melodic without going full brutal. Well, w without you, like the vocals on that are the, the only, this, this song loses points for the song title. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really horrible. I mean, we've already got... Uh, is this a Motley Crue cover? Yeah, we've already got Motley Crue and I think there's 10 other bands that did that. But uh, I remember when I got to this song, I was like, oh God, please. I don't know what this is going to be. But man, what a beautiful melody on that song. And probably the cleanest vocal on there. But if you if you listen to this album in general, he's really got the grit going, you know, more so than ever. And I don't know if that's a way of compensating for not having as much clean anymore, you know, or being able to have as much stuff clean. So he's really kind of morphed into this almost a more metal version of Dio at this point. But if you listen vocally, I think this is definitely the grittiest, you know, from front to back for me, at least. Yeah, he definitely... Again, he hasn't lost a step, but you can see that he's leaning on that heavier end a little bit more, but it's it's not necessarily at the expense of the higher stuff because this, the high stuff that he is hitting, unless it took him 
you know, like 57 takes to do that stuff. <laughs> like, I mean, he still sounds incredible. And it's it's just, again, you know, like like we said about, you know, the rest of the stuff, it, it's it's a constant progression on an upward trajectory. And, you know, it's, at some point, yeah, he's going to lose it. And it's it's going to be a, you know, th- this, this guy's stuff is going to be difficult to recreate live when he starts losing it. Because not only are you not going to be able to do like those high soaring screaming parts, but those low gritty parts, he's going to sound like, you know, Dave Mustaine, like, you know, Mustaine can't do the gritty stuff. Like, so he's going to, when he loses both, it's going to be, ooh, that's not going to be good. That's going to be a fall from grace, uh, which is probably going to be the title of their next album. Uh, but uh, we're overdue at this point. Yeah, <laughs> they <laughs> right. keep adding years to the process, and now we're just over seven years. Which I'll give them a pass for the last two because everybody gets a pass. The last two years fucking sucked. <laughs> right. Well, if you, even if you listen to like I had on here, some of those parts in uh, I think it's towards the course of To Hell and Back. Those are the highest stuff he's ever sang on any of these damn albums. And like John said, we're up to album eight or nine. And like, you know, props to him, man. I mean, he's still just freaking bringing it there. Yep. Uh, did anyone else notice? I had one keynote on here. The very last song, Legend. Did you get that? Uh, did you get the Mean Streets Van Halen vibe on that one or no? The tiniest bit. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you said Mean Street because I'm like, that's a little bit Van Halen-y. Why yeah. am I, what am I thinking of Van Halen for? <laughs> like... And it was yeah, just a little bit, man. But I, I couldn't place the song until you just mentioned it. I was like, oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah, you get this, <laughs> this hint. But I love how this ends, too, because it's like another one of those where it's like super dark and minor. And then you get to the courses and it's like, oh, we go major. And it's this just awesome contrast. And that's what makes a song big is when you can, you know, mix those two together and make it heavy and beautiful and, you know, sort of like we say all the time, sort of cinematic in a way when you combine those type of elements. Yes. Yes. I think this album is the best example of what this band does. And what they do is play all the heavy parts from the other progressive metal bands albums that they stopped playing over the years for some reason. It is 100% a formula. It is a formula they've had from day one. They've done it better depending on what album it is. But at the end of the day, when you're listening to Symphony X you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a heavy metal-ish band that is not afraid to be a little progressive and push the boundary just a little bit. But they're not going to all of a sudden drop everything and become the anti-prog metal band from the 90s. So why hasn't everyone been listening to this band? And I'm cheating. This is going to be my final thought. You need to listen to Symphony X. If you've ever listened to a heavy metal band or a progressive metal band and said, this is the most progressive thing I've ever heard. If you're a fan of Opeth, if you're a fan of Dream Theater, if you're a fan of BT Bam, I could name all the bands. I don't want to. Go back. Listen to Symphony X. There is so much good here that everyone let pass by for so long. I'm thankful for Dave Mustaine pulling this band into Gigantor. That's how I got to see them live for the first time. I couldn't remember ever seeing the band live or hearing that they had played live, which is not fair. But for me, it was that show, that experience that challenged me as a listener. There's more out there than just the bands I've been listening to. Well, I'd add into some bands like, you know, obviously Ingve. I think... 
I think maybe Nevermore, you know, to Halloween to a degree, Primal Fear, Gamma Ray, you know, some of those Evergrey. Yeah, some of those some of those type of bands. Um, you know, there's even there's even flavors. I, I think especially on like maybe Iconoclast. I mean, I hear I hear like some serious like Testament type riffs going on in there. You know, you yeah, guys you mentioned do. you know Pantera <laughs> before. You know, there's, there's, some, yeah. there's some time bag. There's some Pantera. I mean, that's all freaking killer. I mean, you that's the, all the crap you, you want. You want a giant soup of all that crap thrown together. You know, with this sort of neoclassical tent to it. You know what I mean? John Drake, final thoughts on Symphony X. This was a very interesting listen for me, and I I was pleasantly surprised that, you know, again, it gets better and better as it goes. So I think if I was to tell someone, hey, go check out Symphony X, obviously, you know, I'd be like, if you only want to hear one record ever, you don't want to listen to all of it, just listen to one record, it would be Paradise Lost. But I would also tell them that, you know, the, the, the subsequent records are almost as good. And when I say almost, like I'd say like 98, 97% as good. You know, they sound great. Songwriting's great. It's a little more progressed. No matter where you start in the catalog, whatever comes next is going to be better. So if you're like, well, I want to start at the beginning and you go, I, well, I, I like a few parts of, of what they do. I'd be like, well, then listen to the next record because it gets better from there. And then that one builds on that one. And it's... It's a band unlike any I've almost ever heard like that because, again, there weren't really hiccups to me in this, which is weird to say considering that they do the same thing over and over again. So you would think that at some point there'd be a drop-off because, you know, I, I referenced ACDC earlier. There's some crappy ACDC records, even though the songs are basically all the same. But I don't think there's a crappy record in the Symphony X catalog. There may be ones that you're not as into as the others, but again, to me, it's just always moving forward. It's a band that is very aware of their strengths and weaknesses, and they attack both ends of the spectrum, and they try to always improve, and I think they succeed. If you love shred guitar, you got it. If you love power vocals, you got it. If you love you know, operatic vocals, you've got that. Lead bass, something we we didn't talk about, but this band has lead bass all over the place, which is awesome. You know, I referenced Dream Theater because, you know, I have a Dream Theater show, and one of the best things about the band is the first few records, John Myung was doing all that lead bass stuff, which kind of went away after, you know, pretty much the Awake record, and the fans loved it. Well, Symphony X has that all the way through. So, you know, the drumming is phenomenal. Uh, the keyboard player is amazingly talented I, I don't like the sound as much as i've you know dogged on it but talent wise the guy's incredible it's just a really great band and if you hear something that you like on any record you pull up you'll hear that on the rest of the catalog so i, I just think it's a really consistent listen and a very interesting listen brian what about you yeah, you know, echo pretty much, you know, everything John said, you know, and to add to people listening out there, check out the Michael Romeo. The, there's a brand new solo album, the second part of War of the Worlds. The first one is absolutely amazing. I've only heard two songs from the new one, but they're both great. Um, you know, they sound kind of similar to Symphony X. You know, you're going to get a lot of the same feel. Um, Russell Allen also has some of those albums with those. I think it's Yorn Land. There's like four of those that's very power metalish, you know, some really cool stuff he does on those. But yeah, you know, just a great band that I think has, you know, like John said, you know, it's just one of those bands they know what they do, they do it well. I mean, these guys are, you know, they're not young. They're all probably obviously at least in their 50s. They're not going to 
magically change and start doing whatever is trendy, which I don't even know what that is anymore since there's hardly any bands that even pick up and know how to play a guitar anymore. You know what I mean? So they're gonna they're gonna just kind of keep doing what they're doing and probably just get a little bit more heavy and a little bit more progressive and throw a few things here and there and uh, hopefully, you know, before their run is over we can get you know, I'd be happy with maybe another three albums. I mean, let's not get crazy here. They're not going to do 10 more albums at their age. But if we got two or three more albums that sound anything at all like these last three, I'd be totally happy as a fan. And what's your album of the week, Brian? You know, I put on Disarm the Descent. We were talking about Kill Switch earlier. That's like my favorite Kill Switch album of all time. So I just threw that on to go running again. That's one of my ones I throw on to go running like every couple months. Like, I haven't heard this in a while. Just powerful stuff it's a fucking great album <laughs> so underrated as a singer jesse like i mean i'm the he, i'm the giant the biggest howard fan ever but when he came back he reinvigorated that band and that sound i'm opinion. one of the fans who didn't know that howard jones wasn't the vocalist and that was an interesting pill to swallow when jesse leach came back and was telling the story and what caused him to leave the band and thanks for keeping my band for me while I was gone. That was a hard <laughs> pill for me, but you know what? Props to those guys for not making it about me, making it about them. And they, the band got back together and that was what was important. Yep. John, what about you? You want me to just put down Wolfgang Van Halen? <laughs> <laughs> no, a- actually, um, I got kind of like a left field one here. Uh, I, I, I went a pop punk route after so much neoclassical shred. There's some monstrous songs on this record that I love. It's kind of like a guilty pleasure band of mine, if you know my listening tastes. Uh, I've been really digging back into Story of the Year's album, The Constant. There's, you know, it's a solid record, I think, but there's about five songs that I just cannot stop singing along to and jamming to, so um, yeah, I just man, half of that record for me just absolutely is like peanut butter on the roof of my mouth, so I wanted a break from some metal, but I still wanted something with a little bit of groove to it and, you know, some some aggression and some speed. And, and that's what I landed on, the constant by story of the year. I decided to go full trope when you guys agreed to do this show. So my album of the week is my favorite album by this band. It's Images and Words by Dream Theater. I don't even <laughs> care nice. that it's not even the best album by that band. It's my personal favorite and I will always go back to it. It was the most poppiest that band could possibly be. I should have yep. chose the mirror on Awake. More arguments from me on that one. I have to admit, I almost chose Distance Over Time because I, I, I was in the car today and I finally stopped listening to Symphony X and I, I'd done the Symphony of the Year and I was like, man, what just what what is what is on what what is on the tip of my tongue? What is something I you know I'm, I'm thinking of? And tomorrow night, you know. Brian and I will be doing our Talking Into Infinity episode, you know, listing our favorite John Petrucci moments. And Out of Reach from Distance Over Time is a big one for me. And I just had it in my head and I put that on. I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to this. And then I'm like, you know what? I haven't heard Barstool Warrior in a while. And then that went into, you know, Room 137. I was like, oh, yeah. And then S2N. And then, you know, At Wit's End comes on. I'm like, man, oh, man, this record just kicks ass. So I almost, I almost pulled distance over time, but I thought that would be a little too obvious. And I did listen to the constant more. So, Is that considered irony that John took a break from listening to something and listened to Dream Theater instead? 
<laughs> I don't know if it's ironic, but it's definitely unexpected. Yeah, that's one of those things where I never know what ironic is because, like, everyone says everyone uses it wrong. But uh, I was gonna say. <laughs> I was gonna say I don't know if it's it's ironic so much as you know people might say it's complete bullshit, right. <laughs> but it's the honest to God's truth, man. Like I I had not listened to Dream Theater in a minute, so I was like, yeah, man, let's you know. What's the uh, over on and under on the next time John listens to Symphony X in, in in months? I'm gonna say like seven and a half. I'm gonna go nine <laughs> on that. Low. yeah, I'm, I'm low on that. Yeah, I don't t- know. <laughs> I don't know that Paradise Lost record. That is. As much as the two following are absolute like yeah. kick ass albums, man, that 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 Paradise Lost record has an immediacy to it. Well, here's you know, here's the thing we talked about this before. So it's always like the album that you when you first go, oh man, this is the one I love. Whereas someone else like, oh well, I came in here. Or John, and I talk about this all the time. Like the younger people with the younger bands, like I mean, not a band he cares that much about, but even like Killswitch, they're like, oh my god, you know, like the first Jesse album is amazing. And I'm like. What the hell are you talking about? This sounds absolutely horrible compared to like and heartache and <laughs> to stuff. Everything hard. he was gonna do when he comes back. Yeah, exactly. Because he wasn't healthy on that album. Well, they they weren't writing those type of riffs, you know. It was just all hardcore. I mean, they didn't have that melody to them. They didn't have all the cool harmonic stuff they do on the guitars and all that. But it's just it's whatever you come in on. So it's like even a band like this, like like we're saying, like like John said, like they're all these last three albums are pretty similar, so why not just freaking listen to the, the favorite one you have all the time? You know what I mean? Like we only have a limited amount of time to listen to music and, and dig the stuff that we dig. You know what I mean? John, Brian, thanks for hanging out. Thanks for doing this with me. This was fun. Symphony X is one of those bands I've been dying to talk about. So we got this shit in the bag. Thanks for having us, man. Like, you know, I knew when you were looking for bands, I actually immediately thought of Symphony X because I know Brian is a big fan. And he's somebody you have not had on the show, so it's a fresh perspective. And you know, not tooting my my you know co-host's horn over there, but uh, dude, he he brings a, d- a different perspective. He, he knows the musicality of it, you know, the, the different scales and everything. And you know, he's talking about Baroque. You guys talk Phrygian and all this stuff. And I knew you would get into that <laughs> aspect of it. So you know, he he's he's very well versed in this stuff. And I thought that would be a nice counterpoint, you know, to me who's never listened to the band before outside of one record. So. Uh, thanks for having us on, man. I, I really, really appreciate it. It's always a blast being on here, and you know, hopefully we do it again soon, like <coughs> Summer Van Halen. <coughs> Summer Van Halen. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate it. You know, John's too kind. I mean, I, I, I do have that kind of ear where I can listen to any song, and I know exactly what chords that are being played. I can chart that all out. <laughs> so. No, this has been a blast, man. I appreciate it. Anytime I get to talk about a band I love, um, I'm all in. So get me up anytime, Joe. Thanks, buddy. Absolutely. And thank you to the listener for listening to this, for downloading. Thank you for liking and subscribing. And on that note, this has been episode 268 of Discography Discussion. Thank you for listening. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Discuss Metal. Subscribe to our podcast everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Visit DiscussMetal.com for all things discography discussion. And please send questions and comments to DanAndJoeShow at gmail.com. If you are not a patron, you can become one at Patreon.com forward slash DiscussMetal. We have some sweet perks. Aw, come on! Talking Into Infinity can be found everywhere you listen to podcasts and at TalkingIntoInfinity.com. 
This is your longest take ever. I know. I'm fucking it up hard. I, did, I thought I had it written down. I didn't. You're almost as nervous as Brian was when he thought Russell Allen was coming on. Love you too, John. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> you did that. By the way, John, you didn't ask, but my favorite John Petrucci moment is the psycho exercises. The hell is that? You're welcome. <laughs> I have to go look it up now. Huh?